This morning we will be uh, considering verses 18 to 29 with God's help. 18 to 29. This is the word of the Lord. Please give it your full attention. And to the angel of the church of Thyatira write, the son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds, her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who hold who do not hold to this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of pottery are broken to pieces." As I also have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord, dear saints. Let us pray. Gracious Father, precious Son, ever-present Holy Spirit, we ask for your help this morning. We ask, Lord, that you would give us listening ears, understanding minds, believing hearts, hands and feet that obey. And Lord, that we would respond just as you have called the church of Thyatira to respond, that we, Lord, would not think that we are above or disconnected, Lord, from some of the things that have crept into their church, creeping into ours. Give us grace. Give us strength. For Christ's sake and for the good of your people, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Brothers and sisters, we come now to the fourth address from our glorified Lord of glory, Christ to the churches located in Asia Minor. Uh, This morning, we will consider the longest address of the seven churches. It is the church of Thyatira. Uh, You will remember that these seven churches, the seven, number seven, is meant to be a number of completeness. These seven churches are meant to represent the churches, uh, or the church, of all time and of all ages. This church is is an interesting one. Dennis Johnson, in his commentary, says, It is the longest and most difficult of the seven letters addressed to the least known and least important and also least remarkable of the cities. Thyatira. Least uh, remarkable, least known, but Christ addresses to them, gives to them the longest address. Uh, Some background on Thyatira. It was built by Alexander the Great as a military garrison. His soldiers, 
And those who lived in Thyatira worshipped the pagan false god, Apollo. Apollo is known as the son of God. Apollo is known as the son of God. During the time that Christ addressed the church, the city of Thyatira was a prosperous one. In many respects, it was an average city, but it was a prosperous city. It was not like the cities that we've uh, considered thus far. It was not like Smyrna, not like Ephesus, and, and not like Pergamum. It was not a world-renowned city, nor was it a politically important city. It was a working-class city. Uh, one thing that I have failed to mention, and please forgive me, is that in these cities in Asia Minor, economies were booming. And they were booming because they were in a period, a season of rebuilding. Earthquakes and wars had toppled many of these cities. So a city like Thyatira, that had been in and out of the control of different conquerors, was finally now being stabilized. And because it was being stabilized, the economy there was again booming. Uh, the residents there were utilizing their different skill sets to, est- to establish a new society under new leadership. And so it was a great time to be in any of these cities in terms of economy. Uh, there in Thyatira, there were rich minerals that were uh, a part of their natural resources. One of the leading commodities there in Thyatira was wore cloths and metal workers, specifically bronze smiths that'll make sense in just a few moments maybe you remember in the book of acts the apostle paul uh, encountered a woman named lydia lydia who was from thyatira lydia who embraced christ lydia who was also an exporter or a seller of purple cloths who was an expert from thyatira bronze smiths and silversmiths were famous for making some of the best silver pieces in the world. The entire social and industrial and religious structure was built around, as we've talked about before, trade guilds. Uh, Trade guilds are, are much like trade unions, but different in a certain kind of way. There was a trade guild for every kind of, uh, every kind of work, if you will, for every kind of craft. Trade guilds for bronzesmiths, silversmiths, uh, trade guilds for those who were uh, weaving different cloths and so forth. Everyone had their own guild. You could not work if you were not a part of the guild. Trade guilds were different from unions in that they were the very heart of social, religious, and occupational lives. Essentially, if you wanted to function in any of these cities, you had to be a part of a guild. You had to be a part of one of these so-called unions. Periodically, the trade guilds would hold festivals wherein they would worship their pagan god or the god who they believed blessed their work. They would celebrate, offer sacrifices, involve themselves even in sexual immorality as an act of worship. If you chose not to attend, 
in the eyes of those who were worshipping the pagan gods, in the eyes of those who were a part of this guild, it would affect their business. Because you are failing to honor the gods. And if you fail to honor the gods, and the gods will not bless our work, therefore we will all suffer. You must do this. And if you did not, there was only one option. You would be expelled from social, religious, and economic life. Much like in Pergamum, the Lord addresses a people whose faith was in Christ. Because there in Thyatira, there was a faithful people. There were a people that were called by Christ, known by Christ, and who are addressed by the one who knows all and sees all, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ commends these people in Thyatira. And this morning, with God's help, we shall consider the church that is loving, but tolerates sin. The loving church that tolerates sin. We will do that with three points this morning. Uh, Number one, the Son of God who knows our deeds. The Son of God who knows our deeds. Let's look at these verses again. Verses 18 and 19. To the angel of the church of Thyatira write, The Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze. Says this, I know your deeds. And your love and faith and service and perseverance. And that your deeds of late are greater than at first. The church of Thyatira, if you can imagine, has gathered on the Lord's day to hear this letter that has been delivered to their church. It is a special message from John, who has been exiled to Patmos. And John has apparently received a revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ. And as our Lord does with each of the seven churches he addresses, he introduces himself with one of the descriptions that were given or revealed in chapter 1 of John's vision of the glorified Lord. To the church of Thyatira, he is the Son of God. The Son of God whose eyes are like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. An interesting note is that in chapter 1, Christ does not introduce himself as the Son of God. Rather, in chapter 1, he introduces himself as the Son of Man. Christ here to the church of Thyatira, the church wherein the city that they lived worshipped the false god Apollo, who was known as the Son of God. Christ sets the record straight. Christ introduces himself and proclaims and sets the record straight. He is the Son of God. And not Apollo. In First Chronicles 16.26 and Psalm 96.5, God declares, All the gods of the peoples are idols. But the Lord, Yahweh, made the heavens. Since we know that the book of Daniel is also heavily referenced, heavily referenced uh, in this revelation, there is an echo to Daniel chapter 3. The account of the three Hebrew young men who were thrown into the fiery furnace is echoed here. You will remember that when they were in that fiery furnace for uh, refusing to bow their knee to the false god, they were found not to be alone when they were in that, that fiery furnace. But rather, 
it was observed and proclaimed that there was not three, but four in the fiery furnace. And the fourth one looks like the Son of God. Christ, His feet, they glow like burnished bronze because, yes, He is holy. And also because He stands with His people in the midst of every fiery tribulation. Our Lord also echoes Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, Christ, or the psalmist declares, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And there, there is a call back to Psalm 2. And Christ is the only begotten son of the Father. Christ will, he will conclude this message to Thyatira by once again quoting Psalm chapter 2 verses 9 to 12, which we'll get to later. Christ, the Son of God, Christ, the Holy One, Christ, whose feet are like burnished bronze as he walks among his church, looks out among his people with the eyes that are like a flame of fire. And he sees all that transpires within the church. And Christ rightly evaluates the happenings of his people. He rightly diagnoses, if you will, the sickness that is going on within the church. He says, by way or before his examination, he says, I know. Once again, our risen and ascended Lord assures the church of his complete knowledge of all things. Christ knows all things intimately. Christ knows the inner workings of His church. Christ knows the innermost thoughts of His church. And Christ even knows, as the psalmist says, when we sit and when we lie down and when we rise. To the youngest here and to the oldest here, Christ knows us and you intimately. Christ is not saying that he knows how things appear. No, he knows as the one whose eyes are like blazing fire. The one who sees beyond the outwardness of all of our actions. To the very depths of our innermost man. His knowledge is a detailed knowledge. He knows What goes on behind the locked doors? He knows the twists and the turns of our minds and of our hearts. He knows what we think. He knows what we love. He knows what we long for. This is why we are encouraged by the reformers to live coram deo. Before the face of God. Because there is not one nanosecond when we do not live before the face of God. He sees all. We cannot hide who we are from Him who sees all. We can hide who we are from each other. But we cannot hide who we are from Him. There are no closed doors, no locked doors to the one who sees all. And what does He see? 
verse 19, your deeds. And here they are. The deeds are love, faith, service, perseverance. And he even says, and that your deeds of late are greater than the first. Dear saints, is this not a wonderful commendation? Uh, We would all love to hear that our Christ has peered into our church. And when he has peered into our church, he sees in our church deeds of love, faith, service, and perseverance. I wonder, if Christ were writing to RBC, what would he see? If Christ were writing to Reformation Bible Church, what would he see? Some of us might say, I know what he would see. I know what he would bring out. Christ says to the church of Thyatira, I know. These things that are seen by Christ, and listen to the order of them, love, faith, service, and perseverance, they are actually things that are found in most churches. They are actually things that are found in most churches. You might notice the the location of the addresses that Christ gives. There is there is Ephesus in the beginning, and then here in the middle there is there's Thyatira, and to Thyatira there is the longest address. What we see on both ends are, are things that are are rare and, and periodic. What we see here in the middle are the things that are most common. Thyatira. In Thyatira, we find. That which is most common in most churches. Here, we find deeds of works of this church that are, that are recognized not just as general deeds of Christian service, but they, they are works of a persevering witness to an outside world. That, that's what they're doing. We know this because, here's why we know this. Words like love, faith, and endurance are used. But especially words like faith and endurance, when those two are used together elsewhere in this letter, they almost always refer to a persevering witness. What is the church of Thyatira doing? They are persevering in their witness to Christ. That's the main deed that Christ is commending them for. Persevering in their witness. The church of Thyatira, much like all the other churches, was under increasing pressure to denounce Christ and to to return to the paganistic way of life that they came from. The church did what the true church has always done. It remained faithful to Christ and it remained faithful to their love for him and for one another. The church, they would not renounce their faith. They endured, no matter what kind of persecution or threatenings came their way, and they are commended by Christ for this deed. They were commended for their their love, their faith, service, and endurance. And it appears that this church is, is truly the kind of church that we would all want to be a member of. In fact, the Lord even notes, your deeds are even greater now than they were at first. And there is a type of play on words here. It's a, it's a kind of comparing and contrasting between Ephesus, who have walked away from their former deeds, 
and Thyatira, who is increasing and doing better than they were in the beginning. Ephesus began well, but over time left their first love. Thyatira, on the other hand, began well and over time increased in love. That sounds good to me. Remember, though, this is love for neighbor and not necessarily love for Christ, though they had that. You'll notice, again, the outer workings of their deeds. And I'm going to say these over and over again. Love, faith, service, and endurance. Let me ask you this. If you were asked, what is the foundation of your spiritual life? How would you answer that? What is your spiritual life based upon, built upon? To ask another way, what is the root of your spiritual life? How would you answer that? Someone might say, love. Love is the foundation, or or love is the root of my spiritual life. And while it is true that we do love, uh, we are only able to love because of the foundation of faith. Faith is the root of love. Love is not the root of faith. Faith is your foundation. That everything else is built upon. Faith is the foundation of your spiritual life. It is by faith that we are grafted into Christ. It is by faith that we are drawn from Christ, or to Christ, to treasure Christ in salvation. We grow in faith, in knowledge, in love, in faith and hope and love by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith. We are given faith to believe. And as we believe, our hearts are enabled to love. And we love him because he first loved us. All men will know that we are disciples of Christ when we have love for one another. It's an outworking of faith. Why does this matter? Why were we even talking about this? Because this is apparently what was going on in Thyatira. They loved one another. They even loved unbelievers. They were unashamed about persevering in their love for Christ, even when they were persecuted for their love for Christ. The outside pressure did not diminish their love. Every logical reason to put a lampshade over the light of Christ that Christ had entrusted them with, but they would not do so. They were in danger of losing jobs being excluded from social life, increasing in danger in the danger of imprisonment, but they had not lost their love for witnessing. They had their faith, but ooh, they had love. It would not deter their love. Instead, the church, they were helped by the Holy Spirit to, to advance the gospel. And, and it seems like the overriding characteristic of this church is love. The church was determined to go into all the world with love. The church of Thyatira, for all of its wonderful, attractive deeds, was not a perfect church. Although we might say, that's all I want. I just want to go to a place where I feel loved. I want to go to a place where where people love one another. I feel loved. We give love. All we need is love. But this was not a perfect church. And love, while it is important in the church, is not the only important thing in the church. 
I should say as a side note, you should be encouraged to know that there are no perfect churches. What could be the issue with this church, I wonder? Love is uh, flourishing in the church. But love is mentioned first in this list of those things that Christ is commending the church for. Notice what is not in this list of commendations. Let's go to our second point. The church that lacks purity or holiness. The church that lacks purity or holiness. Could you turn the air on, brother? Thank you. This is verses 20 through 24, which we will attend to in a moment. Christ commends the church of Thyatira. And then our Lord turns his attention to the charge against the church of Thyatira. Again, the missing characteristic of the church of Thyatira is not love. It's not faith. It's not even service. What a wonderful time we had yesterday. Seeing the church here serving one another. Uh, Seeing the church do so with joy. It was a wonderful time. I told one of the brothers, it was the best church cleanup I've ever had. And they also were persevering. What could be missing? I have this against you. That you tolerate that woman Jezebel. And listen to the, the phrase, who calls herself a prophetess. She not was not one, but calls herself one. And she leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Similar to the church of Pergamum, the church of Thyatira was charged with, listen to this, giving free reign, tolerating the rope, if you will, of false teachers led by one false teacher to spread false teaching in the church, to cause the servants of God to compromise, to cause them to think that it was permissible to participate in pagan worship, which was ultimately resulting in the church of Christ being impure, lacking holiness. The Lord charges the church with tolerating. Listen to that. Charges the church with tolerating. The teachings that may have been uh, presented by one woman named Jezebel, or not one woman in the spirit, if you will, of Jezebel, but also who has apparently gained a following in the church as well. She is the figurehead who has gained a following. Christ says about those who are her followers, I will kill her children and her. It could be that there was, again, uh, this this figurehead who was gaining influence in the church whatever the matter the first matter at hand is the bride of christ is allowing this to take place the bride of christ the church of thyatira was allowing this this false prophetess this woman who called herself a prophetess but was a false one allowing her to continue her teachings in the church they they tolerated this Uh, we may think It sounds like we've heard this before in Pergamum. And you would be correct to draw comparisons, but there are certain differences. In Thyatira, there seems to be more an emphasis on prophecy and false teaching. 
Christ says she teaches and leads astray his ones. In Pergamum, Christ says, I've just got a few things against you, which may indicate that the false teachers had not been allowed to flourish for as long and to influence as many people as in Thyatira. So that in Thyatira, Christ says, not I have a few things against you, but I have this against you. You tolerate. This seems to indicate that the situation there has become serious. And we'll find out in a moment why it's reached its culminating point. It was this, though. It was as if Christ was looking at Thyatira and says, I love the way you love, but I hate the way you tolerate. I love the way you love each other, but I hate the way you tolerate sin. You allow the church to be sullied, poisoned, because you think, you think by allowing it, you're showing love. And not judgment. But that if you judged, then you would not be showing love. Do you see that? It was almost as if you can believe whatever you want to believe. I still will see you as my brother in Christ in spite of what you believe because I'm called to love you. Therefore, I will tolerate you. There seems to be somewhat of a connection, not only in this generation, but, dear ones, in every single generation. There's a call to tolerate things that are absolutely wrong as an act of love. If you were a Christian, then you would love me in spite of what I believe. You would allow me to continue. And you write, I do love you. Therefore, I... No, that is not what the church is called to do. The church is, is called to say, because I love you, I will not tolerate this poison. Because I love you, I will not tolerate this heresy. Because it will kill you. They were tolerating a false prophetess who the Lord associates with Jezebel. Now, remember, uh, Revelation is meant to be interpreted symbolically. Therefore, the name of this false prophetess was most likely not Jezebel. You ever met a person named Jezebel? There's a reason why you probably don't know any Jezebels in your life. You probably would say of a woman, she's a Jezebel of a woman, right? But you probably don't know anybody who's actually named Jezebel. The Lord is alluding to the Jezebel of the Old Testament in First Kings, who led Israel astray by false teaching and leading them into idolatry. Jezebel, uh, brief background, was an unbelieving princess from Sidon who married King uh, King Israel, or I'm sorry, who married Israel's King Ahab. King Ahab. In this marriage, Jezebel brought her false gods into Israel. And also brought with her the pagan priest who taught the doctrine of Baal and Ashtoreth. This false doctrine and this false teaching it began to infiltrate and poison the nation of Israel. Israelites were seduced and deceived into believing that the, the Sidonian gods could bring economic prosperity, heal their lands, give their women fertility. Jezebel and her false teachers promoted fornication promoted ritual prostitution as a part of their worship and caused Israel, a portion of Israel, to call or to fall into immorality. Similarly, the false teachers led by a false prophetess were arguing that 
to some degree, participation in idolatry was permissible. This New Testament Jezebel, if you will, taught that Christians within the church, in the church, that it was okay to keep your job. The trade guilds want you to to join them in their worship to the gods. Join them. You commit no sin against Christ. Join them. And she's even deceived the church by teaching things that she would call the deep things of God. Which God will call later, not the deep things of God, but the deep things of Satan. I've got a secret knowledge that God has given to me, she might have said. That these things are permissible by God. That you can join them and not lose your place with Christ. Just as Jezebel urged the Israelites to worship Baal and Ashtoreth alongside of Yahweh. This New Testament Jezebel and her children, those who agreed with her, taught that belief in Christ and belief and participation with these pagan rituals did not exclude you from the church and it should not exclude you from the guilds. Survival and prosperity was important. You must remember that the context of our brothers and sisters, that they, they were living in this booming economy. Can you imagine? Everyone's getting a piece. Everyone is prospering. But you. And it is because of your stance in Christ. It is because of your unwillingness to compromise. It is because you are you are holding fast to Christ and you believe that only Christ should be worshipped and that only Christ is the Son of God. And it's costing you. It's costing you big time. Just as you are a member of RBC, expected to join us for worship, and if you do not join us for worship, then your membership is in question. Your standing among us will be in danger. You could ultimately be excommunicated. So it was for those who were living in Thyatira in relationship to the guilds. It's no wonder why this New Testament Jezebel and her children were able to gain such influence. There's great pressure. This church is what, in this church is found what is most commonly found in most churches. What is it? Tolerating false teaching, which is leading to a compromise of holiness. One necessarily leads to the other. You tolerate false teaching, it will lead you to sin. True teaching leads you to righteousness and holiness. False teaching leads you to compromising and sin. From the outside, we may look at them and all churches like them. And here's what we observe, don't we? We pass by their churches. We know some of their members and we say, they seem to love each other. They seem to have faith in Christ because they're using the name of Christ. They're, they're using a Bible like ours. Their teacher, pastor, is going through a verse-by-verse study. They're telling me all the time about the things that they're learning. They seem to be serving in, in the city. They're passing out food to the homeless. They are uh, serving people in some kind of way. And here's the last, and they're still here. 
They seem to be persevering. They seem to be having a good old time. But then we hear what they're teaching from those churches, don't we? And we go, I'm amazed. We both believe in Christ. How in the world are you sitting under that teaching? How are you still tolerating that kind of garbage? We hear the heresy that's coming out of their mouths that's being taught from the pulpits that they're sitting under, and we're shocked. Last week we mentioned that when we survey the culture, it seems that there are so few who are concerned with worship, or so it may seem. The culture today is consumed with the worship of self. One uh, gentleman said to me recently that social media, listen to this, I love this. It's a platform, or from his perspective, seems to be a platform for people to self-congratulate themselves. I had to take a step back in a moment in my own mind. I thought, that's really, that's really profound. Social media is simply a platform for people to, to self-congratulate themselves. Look at me. Look at us. Look at what I did. Look at what I said. Look at my quote. Look at my people. Look at my clothes. Look at my, it's all about, look at me. And then you wait and you look. How many likes? How many uh, hearts? Uh, how many people are going to congratulate me? Pergamum, there was a pagan god is designated for every desire that one might need. We look at these people that, that we go, that go to these churches and they say, they're loving, they have faith, they have service, they have perseverance. But this false teaching, how could they stay there? How could they, how could they remain under this kind of, of heresy? All you have to do is tell the people what they want to hear. Because don't they want to worship themselves? Don't they want to be exalted? That's all they want. Why are they still there? Because there's something there that makes them feel good about themselves. There's something there that makes them say, yes, I am, whatever it may be. It doesn't take much for a false teacher to deceive. All they have to do is tell people what they selfishly desire. That's how they gain the foothold. Do you want money? The false teacher will tell you that you'll get it. Growing up in my tradition, there was a phrase that, that stood around for a long time. It was this, money cometh. And people said it, not with a smile. They were serious about it. They would write it on their walls. If, if they were living during this time, they might have gotten a tattoo of it. Do you want health? then you can tell sickness to go away. Do you want pleasure? They will turn their eyes away from fornication and quickly defend and will not be quick to defend the purity of the church. How many of those false teachers were caught in some kind of adultery and immorality and fornication and they're still preaching? Married to one woman, two women, three women, and they still gather to hear that fornicator, that adulterer, preach his false teaching. As long as he's telling them what they want to hear, it does not matter. 
Brothers and sisters, as long as man still lives in this fallen state, as long as man still desires to exalt himself, false teachers will remain. They're not going nowhere. From Paul's time period, 2 Timothy 3.13, he tells Timothy, evil people and imposters will proceed and go from bad to worse. It was bad then. It's worse now. Why? Because it's more widespread. Deceiving and being deceived. John Stott says, if the devil cannot destroy the church by persecution or heresy, he will try to corrupt her with evil. It was said in the early church that they feared heresy more than persecution. Because persecution would only kill the body. Heresy would kill the soul. As this letter was being read, you imagine Jezebel sitting in the church. You imagine Jezebel's children sitting in the church. And all of a sudden, there's a letter from John who's been given a vision by Christ and John begins to, or the reader begins to read. And can you imagine the Jezebel in the church? Can you imagine her children sitting in the church realizing that Christ sees what they're doing? John is not able to get reports. John is receiving a report, a vision from God. And he sends it to the churches and the churches now know this is your last chance to repent, Jezebel. This is your last chance Children who are following her to repent. Turn away from this heresy. Verses 21 through 23. It appears that Christ in some way. Through some kind of teaching or direct confrontation. Has, has given her opportunities to repent. Has given her children opportunities to repent. I asked her. Or, uh, let me just go to it. Verse 21. He says. I gave her time to repent. She does not want to repent of her immorality. She's had opportunity whether it whether it came through pulpit teaching, whether it came from someone pulling her and her children aside and saying, this is wrong. There is some kind of idea that there has been some kind of time that has been given to these false teachers to repent, but they would not. Can you imagine being in the, the church of Thyatira? One might say, why wouldn't they just leave? Well, in our day and time, you can just go to the church down the street. In Thyatira, it's quite possibly that this was the one and only church in Thyatira. What would you rather do? Not gather with the saints for worship or gather and endure? Because there were some faithful ones there who we'll get to in a moment. There were some faithful ones there who said, I know this is going on. I know this is happening. Christ is sovereign over his church. Christ is the son of God. Christ sees all. This will be corrected. I won't leave. I can't leave. Christ has been merciful for a time, withholding judgment for a time, displaying his mercy and patience for a time, not willing that any should perish. But there is a day when the Lord has determined that his patience will run out. There is a time when the patience of the Lord expires for those who continually harden their hearts. Judgment has come, and it's coming as a means to purify the church. It's coming so that the church can be presented pure before Christ. He knows his bride. Christ comes then to make sure that that all of the spots and all of the wrinkles are removed from his bride before she is presented to him. 
And it is telling that Christ charges the church, or not only the false prophetess, but he charges the church and the followers of not repenting, but also, again, the church of tolerating this sin. As we said last week, and this will, will connect, it is our right and it is our responsibility to protect the church from false teachers. They are not allowed to have any place in this church, nor are they allowed to have any audience in this church. The church of Thyatira apparently called these false teachers to repent, but they called them to repent with empty threats. It's one thing to tell someone to repent over and over and over again. It's another thing to actually do something about it. Just like your children, our children. If you allow them to continue to be disobedient over and over and over again, what kind of habits are you creating in them? If you're telling them to, if you're allowing disobedience without any consequences, they're going to believe that you don't mean it. That they can actually do and walk all over you without any kind of consequence. They may have enacted step one. Go to the one who sinned. We'll talk about this in three or four weeks. They may, they may have also enacted step two. If they do not repent, take it to two or three witnesses. They may have even done step three. Tell it to the elders if they do not repent. They may have even gone to step four. Tell it to the church. But they didn't do step five. They didn't turn them over to Satan. For not repenting. They stopped at, at four. Everybody in the church knew it, but they didn't go to, to number five. They didn't turn them over to Satan so that they could feel the weight of their sin. They allowed them to stay in the church. Christ not only comes and charges the false teacher, he charges the church. The church who harbors false teachers, who allows them to, to move and to have space to, to move and, and, and to carry on their deeds of evil. When one does not repent, we must turn them over to the one that they are showing that they belong to. Satan. There are things that are not becoming of a Christian that, that we cannot in good conscience say you are acting in concert with Christ. Instead, you are acting in concert with Satan and we must turn you over to your father, the devil. We resemble what we worship and we resemble who we worship. Who do you most resemble now? Not just in the outer workings of your life, but in the inner workings of your life, in your thought life, in your devotion life. Who are you most resembling now? Because you most resemble that which you worship. We'll say more on this in a few weeks. The judgment of Christ is this. If she does not repent, then he will throw her on a bed of sickness. She was uh, influencing the church that they could commit acts of immorality. There are little ones here. Acts of immorality. And so Christ says, you want a bed? I'll put you on a bed. And on that bed, there will be sickness. And those who commit acts of immorality with you, her, they will also experience great tribulation unless they repent. 
listen to our Christ. And I think it's important for us to, to hear this clearly. Christ says, I will kill her and her children with pestilence. Literally, it is this. I will kill her with death. That is the strongest language of impending judgment. Christ threatens to kill her and those who follow her then and now with death. Christ will give each according to their works. For those who persist in flagrant sin, unwilling to repent the call of repentance, they will suffer chastisement both from the church, yes, and from Christ. The church only declares what Christ declares from heaven. It is the binding and loosing of Matthew chapter 18. This is the king that we worship. Psalm 2 calls the people to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Psalm 2 says, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. When we think of Christ, don't we often think of the gentle Christ, we should be reminded that he is the son of God whose eyes are like flaming fire. When we think of Christ, we sometimes only think of the kind Christ. We must remember that he is the one with the two-edged sword in his mouth. He is the one who searches hearts and minds and he will not be, be deceived by any pretentious believer. Christ says, if you do not repent, he will enact judgment. And listen to this in verse 23. And then all the churches will know. (laughs) And then all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. What was the purpose of Ananias and Sapphira being killed because of their lying to the Holy Spirit? What was the purpose of that? So that all the church would know. So that all the church would know. Christ says, I will kill Jezebel and her children. And the purpose of this will be so that the church will know that Christ is not playing with sin. So that Christ will know that he is serious about holiness. That he is serious about the purity of his church. Praise be to God that there were some in the church, though, who were not seduced. There were some in the church who had not been led astray. Some in the church who had not been hypnotized by the false teaching of Jezebel and her children. Uh, There were some in the church who had not been led astray and deceived by the deep things of Satan. Dear ones, when you hear false teachers say things that are obviously unorthodox, I pray to God that you have the discernment to know that these are the things of Satan and not the things of God. When you hear Benny Hinn claim that God has revealed to him that there are not three persons of the Trinity, but nine, I pray that you would have discernment to not receive the deep things of Satan. When Jesse Duplantis recently said that the reason why Christ hasn't returned is because people are not giving into his ministry, I pray that you would not be deceived by the deep things of Satan. When you hear false teachers like Stephen Furtick say in a recent rant, I am God Almighty. That you would see that man is not God Almighty, but he is filled with the devil. That you would not be led astray by false teachers. 
anyone who exalts themselves and not Christ is a false teacher. Anyone who at the end of their sermon, you are more led to them than to Christ, they are a false teacher. Every single preacher, every single teacher should point you more to Christ, should give your eyes a wider view of Christ. These false teachers were spewing the deep things, not of God, but of Satan. They believed that they were going into the mysteries of God. No, they were going into the mysteries of Satan. What were they? Perhaps participation in idolatrous, demonic world that is permissible. As long as they didn't make the weaker brothers stumble. Perhaps a kind of freedom in Christ theology. A a proto-Gnosticism. A knowledge of deeper things of God. Perhaps it was teaching that the physical world didn't even matter. Your presence in a pagan temple was harmless because what matters is only spiritual things. Physical is just matter. It doesn't matter. Whatever it was. We do not give these agents of Satan the time of day. Nor any of our support. And we are to warn her minions. That they are in danger of being killed by death of Christ. Christ says to those who are holding fast. This is third. The promise of our Lord for holding fast. I give no. I place no other burden on you. Now he's speaking to the faithful ones. No burden on you. No burden on you. Those who have not been hypnotized by these so-called deep things. Listen to the language. He says. But hold fast. Nevertheless, hold fast until I come. Here's what you need to be concerned with. Those of you who have not been hypnotized. Those of you who have not been deceived. Here's the only thing that you need to be concerned about. Hold fast until I come. All the promised rewards of Christ Therefore, those who hold fast, everything that's coming after this, the promised things that Christ promises to give, they are for those who hold fast. Pastor, didn't you say that last week? Didn't Jesus say that last week? Do you not need to hear it again? I do. Did you not feel some kind of of sense of yes and amen when you were singing a moment ago? He will hold me fast. For those who have not compromised, your only concern is to cling by faith to Christ in your uncompromised state. You are uncompromising. Stay that way. Hold fast to Christ. You have not given in to the the pressures and the persecutions of the world. Stay that way. We may be thinking, but what if I lose my grip of Christ? It's firm today, but what if it loosens tomorrow? Or what if I do capitulate and yield over to the world, the flesh and the devil? Will I still be able to hold fast to Christ? What if I don't? Let me encourage you this morning, dear brother and sister. God has promised that ability to cling to Christ to hold fast to Him is not dependent on our strength nor ability alone. Have you ever held hands with someone 
And as you're holding hands with them, you, you begin to realize you're holding their hand, but they're not holding yours. You ever done that? And you kind of give a squeeze. Hey, this is a, a mutual holding here. And you might feel a little bit of a, of, a, of a, oh yeah, I'm here. But you still feel kind of a wet fish in your hand. You never need to worry about that being the case with God. You never need to worry about your holding his hand, but him not holding yours. He has promised, even if my father and mother abandon me, the Lord will hold me close. He has promised us, Isaiah 41.10, don't be afraid. I'm with you. Don't be discouraged. I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will hold you up by my victorious hand in verse 13. For I am the Lord who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, do not fear. I will help you. You need not ever wonder or worry. I seem to be the only one clinging here. No. It may only feel like that. But He has promised and also encouraged you. Do not fear. I'm upholding you with His hand. You think you're the one holding Him. He's holding you. If there's ever a person who we might fear of loosening grip, it's not Him. And even when our grip does loosen, He has promised to hold us close and tight and never let us go. I will help you, he says. Dear brother and sister, there are plenty of passages. So I began to read, if we go through all these passages, we're going to have a, a crying fest by the end of all of these. Holding fast, you're uncompromising. Your clinging to Christ is not dependent upon you alone. Do you have a responsibility? You sure? Yes, you do. Is it yours alone? No, it's not. In his strength, he has promised that those who are his, that he will sustain them, that he will support us on this royal road. Do you do not fear, therefore? What may come, nor your ability to hold fast to Christ when inevitable tribulation comes your way. He will hold you fast. And to him who overcomes, to him who keeps his deeds or his law, until the end, there are promised rewards. We all know that we're not saved by keeping the law. We all know that we're saved by faith, by Christ through faith and grace. We all know those things, but we are commanded to obey his righteous commands. And if we do, we shall be given rewards for our deeds. Can you imagine, you will be rewarded in heaven. You will be given rewards for your deeds in heaven. And Christ promises that he will grant a share in the messianic kingdom as prophesied in Psalm 2. Over which he has already received authority to rule. Now, let's let's get into maybe some of the weeds here. Quoted from Psalms. Verse 26. 
all caps says, I will give authority over the nations. This is important. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. As the vessels of the potters are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my father. We have discussed, and some of you, uh, not to complete the light, but we have discussed in this church the kingship and the rule of Christ. In his kingdom, we are kings. And that kingdom has already begun. It's not just future, it is today. But for today, what does it mean for us to break others with the rod? It's a promise. It's a reward. What does it mean for us to break others with the rod of iron? To dash them to pieces like pottery. The key to understanding this note is how Jesus has modified Psalm 2. There's a, a, a slight correction in that the wielding of iron to break people is now authority that's given to rule them. In the Greek, word for rule means shepherd. Christ is not saying necessarily that we are now going to break people, but we will shepherd them. Now, what does that mean? Christ is granting a promise to his faithful people, the ability to shepherd his flock, using the rod of discipline to protect them from those who will do them any kind of spiritual harm. This promise is related specifically to church life for the church. Meaning what? The promise is one that encourages us that while we are in the church and return and wait for the blessed return of Christ, we have the authority to speak on behalf of heaven. This promise is not disconnected from what was going on in Thyatira. What were the, what was the church in Thyatira not doing? Practicing church discipline. There was at some point or another when the church believed that they did not have the full right or authority to carry out the judgment of Christ. The church was not taking proper measures. They were tolerating false teaching, tolerating the false prophetess, not using the authority that had been given to them to use the rod of discipline to dash heresy to pieces like pottery. Christ reminds the church, you have been given the right. You have the authority. And also, listen, the obligation to use the authority given by, given to Christ by the Father and the authority that Christ has given to you, His church, to ensure that the bride remain pure for His return. So that we are presented to Him without spot or wrinkle. Authority is given over the nations, though. Well, what does that mean? What is the church? The church is a church of nations, aren't we? We are, we are nations represented here. The church is one nation, one people, one body, under one Lord, or one, one baptism. But we have been gathered from the nations. You begin to look at some of our backgrounds. Mexico, and Philippines, and Europe, and Africa, and Asia, and so on. We have been gathered from the nations. We, the church, have been given authority 
over the nations that are united to Christ when they come under the headship of Christ and under the leadership of the church to be shepherded until Christ returns. Authority over the nations. We need not fear that when we practice church discipline, we don't have the authority to do so. Christ has told us, you have authority, you are of his kingdom, you speak on behalf of his kingdom, shepherd the nations, teach them all that Christ has commanded. And lo, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. It's a promise from the Lord, the one who is the son of God, that if we obey and hold fast, we will be given the morning star. Numbers 24 in closing in a vision, Balaam had seen a star emerging from Jacob, a scepter rising out of Israel to crush Moab. The star scepter symbolized a warrior king who identifies himself in Revelation. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify these things to you concerning the churches. I am the root of De- I am the root and descendant of, Je- of David, the bright and morning star. Dear saints, in conclusion, what is the promised reward that Christ gives to his people? What is your reward? We've talked about this. Rewards in heaven. What are you most looking forward to? Dominion? Authority? Kingship? Some of us have smaller heads and want to make sure that bigger heads, whatever. I hope, I'm sure he's got one that fits. Christ promises to us a greater treasure than all of those things. It's himself. I will give to you the morning star. He says, I give you myself. There's nothing greater. He is our treasure. The world is threatened that you will be excluded if you don't join us. You'll be poor if you don't join us. You won't know the deeper things if you don't join us. Why haven't you capitulated yet? Because you found a greater treasure, haven't you? And the promise for those who hold fast to Christ is that there will be an increasing, increasing delight in this treasure until it reaches its ultimate climax in enjoyment. Meaning what? Hasn't your delight in Christ been increasing? Haven't you learned that, that, that of all of the things that the church tries to says, tries to say, this is important and that's important, that you finally have been in a place where Christ is now important. Christ is now exalted. And, and you've, you've taken your eyes off of all of the extra things and it's now become more about Christ and less about anything else. Aren't you after one of Pastor Isaiah's sermons in Christology going, whoa. Oh. Christ, you are, you are blowing my mind. I cannot believe how, how you have further enlightened my spiritual eyes to see and adore you more. As you are embarking on revelation, are you not delighted to see that you no longer need to fear when you open up the book of revelation that, that dragons are going to come popping out and, and bite you and you're not going to be able to, to move past chapter one? Aren't you excited that you now can read revelation? And be encouraged and no longer fear. 
Aren't you delighted when you hear Christ say, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And with these new ears that have been given to us by the Spirit, we no longer dread the words of our Christ. We long for them. And that delight will one day reach a climactic crescendo that will no longer ebb and flow. You'll no longer be hot one day and then cold the next. You will be eternally inflamed for Christ. And the presence of sin will be removed. And you will enjoy Him forever. That day will come, royal saint. When our delight in God will be without end. Our joy in Him will never decrease. And His kingdom will know no end. You are citizens of that kingdom now. Hold fast to Christ. Let's pray.